as we continue to look at what our confession teaches in the summary of Scripture on church censures, I ask you to turn in your Bibles or look on the slide projected above saw from, from Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. This is the word of the living God. Let us hear it with faith. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers, the flower falls to the earth, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Father in heaven, we thank you for your enduring word. We thank you that the word became flesh and has spoken and continues to speak even down through the ages, even till today. For the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the Bible to write down these words and preserve them through the many decades and centuries and millennia down to today. And now that same Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, works in our hearts to illumine our minds that we might understand these words. And we pray that we would have not only understanding, but submission. We pray that we would bow before your holy word, hear what you have to say to us, and continue to cry out from the depths of our being, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So now give us listening ears. Help us to know the truth, which alone is able to set us free. That all glory and praise would be to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Peter confesses his faith in Jesus Christ in answer to that most important question that mankind has ever faced. But who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, you didn't figure that out on your own. You didn't study up and come to that conclusion by yourself. This has been revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. This is God's revelation. The Father reveals to us the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit works faith in us in a way that we can't understand, but so that we are saved by grace. Now when we come to become confessing members of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we we ask for a little more than you say, uh, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In fact, 
I think you may remember, it hasn't been that, it's been a while. Uh, we had five, we had, we received a, a confessing member of the church, and, and we have those five membership vows. And some of, of you uh, younger people are working through those with me even now on Tuesdays as we prepare for your confession of faith. And no one is required to memorize them all, and that's a good thing, because I haven't, even though I've, I've read them a number of times, that's why we have them printed in this book. And it's, it's good for us to remember. What, what are the, the membership vows? Well, let me summarize them for you, if I may. In the first place, you must believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God. That you, you believe this is, this is a book that's unlike any other book. This is, this is God's revelation of Himself. This is God making Himself known to humanity. And in this book, we are taught the way of salvation. And there's only one way of salvation. There's only one way to be right with God, and we find out about that in the Holy Scriptures. That's the first thing we confess when we confess our faith. Secondly, we we confess that we believe that God is one God in three persons. We believe in a triune God, and we believe that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity come in the flesh. You know, when we ask those questions, everyone in Christendom, and I, and I mean that in the broadest sense. The word says yes. <laughs> you know, that's, these, are the, these are the defining moments of Christianity. This is like the ecumenical creeds of the apostles and, and Nicaea, which everyone has agreed upon. And even when we come to the third question, do you, do you acknowledge that you're a sinner? And, and you need God's grace. You need forgiveness. You need to be made right with God, and you can't do it for yourself. Everyone says yes and Amen. And in the fourth place, we, we acknowledge Jesus not only as Savior, but as Lord. And, you know, there's been a little bit of division in the last century over that question. There are those who said, we can have Jesus as Savior, but, you know, maybe later we'll have him as Lord. And we've, we've disagreed. Most, most Protestants, not just people in, in the Reform camp, have agreed that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. If he's not Savior and Lord, then he's not Lord or then he's neither Savior nor Lord. And, and you have a, a Jesus that's just a figment of your imagination rather than the Jesus who reveals himself in Scripture as the one who has authority. You know, we, we jump around in the Bible, and that's okay. So we have to go back and forth and see things. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will say to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And we understand that he is the Lord of all. We understand that. So our first four, four vows go off without a hitch. And everybody, you know, within evangelical Christendom says, yes, yay, and amen. And then we come to the, the fifth vow, and it's always the sticking point. It's always the, it's always the point where, where we really have to concentrate our attention because it's the one that, that causes the most consternation. And, and here, for, for the sake of accuracy, I will read it uh, and not try to summarize it. But do you promise to participate faithfully in this church's worship and service to submit in the Lord to its government and to heed its discipline, even in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life. And we take that seriously. We don't just say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's what you have to say to get in, and once you've said it, that's okay. No, every once in a while, somebody has to stand up and remind us all that we are under divine authority. The church 
does not possess inherently divine authority, we're to be careful. I'm, I have no right to stand here in this pulpit and tell you anything that doesn't come directly from the Word of God. And you have the right, nay, the responsibility to listen carefully and then go to the Bible and see, are these things true? Even the Berean Christians were commended for searching the Scriptures to find out if the things Paul said were true. Now, if you can't you know, if you're allowed to test an apostle, <laughs> you're, you're certainly allowed to, to test a, a 21st century preacher according to God's word. You can go to the word and say, what does it say? Yes, I hear what you're saying, but more importantly than what you're saying is, what does God have to say? And that's what we want to look at together this morning for a few minutes as we look at the teaching of Scripture regarding the keys of the kingdom. And you'll see here that I have decided, and not for the first time, and I'm the only one, that there are two keys. Jesus just uses the plural. He doesn't say, he doesn't say there, there are two keys, but historically the church has understood that there are two keys. And those two keys have been summed up in, in different ways, given different titles, doctrine and discipline, word and sacraments, um, you know, whatever you choose to, to, to differentiate between. One is, is the verbal instruction and the written instruction that comes through the church of Jesus Christ. And then the other is more personal. That's a general instruction that comes to us with the, with the whole counsel of God. And then there's that specific personal application that comes in the sacraments, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, or, or personal attention when we come to the point where we are found delinquent in life or doctrine. And we need to listen to the counsel that comes through the church. But again, remember that counsel that comes through the church is always subordinate to the Word of God. No preacher, no church, no institution has the right to make it up as they go along. We must rely entirely on God's revelation. And that's why it's interesting. As Jesus asks the question, as he opens up this discussion with his apostles, he says, he says who do people say that I am? And they come up with a bunch of different answers. And I'm sure there were even more answers than, than those three. You know, there, there are probably a whole bunch more opinions of, of who was Jesus. And people were, were not sure. But the real important question, Jesus says, is what about you? And it's a very important question for each and every one of us. What about you? What who is Jesus to you? If I could put it in the, in the modern vernacular. Who is Jesus to you? And if you say, well, he's a, he's a great teacher. He's the greatest teacher ever. Well, that's, that's true. But if you stop there, we need to have a discussion. We need, to, we need to talk about, you know, what more do you believe about Jesus other than he's, he's a great moral teacher? If you say that he's, he's the son of God. Yes, that. That is true, too. We, we can say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He is, he is the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. We need to still, as I said, flesh that out a little more. What does, what does that mean? We sang moments ago about the marvelous grace of God. And that marvelous grace focuses in on, on what? The cross of Calvary, where Jesus bled and died to provide salvation for his people. So we must confess that Jesus is our Savior and that he is our Lord. And that revelation doesn't come from man. It comes from God. 
It comes through the ministry of the church. God brings his word to bear on people's hearts through the church. It is ordinarily, our catechism says, through the preaching of the word that people hear and that the spirit works. Now, it says ordinarily. That doesn't mean, you know, there, there are occasions where people, you know, have, have, have testified that they've been staying in a, in a hotel room, they've been feeling, you know, emotionally oppressed, depressed, whatever you want to say, and they've, and they've, they've pulled open the night table drawer, and there was the Gideon's Bible. And they, they took it out, and they began to read. And God, directly, through his word, touched their hearts and caused them to see the truth of who they were and who he is. There have been people solidly converted outside of worship services because they've read God's word. And I think we can say that for a certainty, that no one is born again apart from the word of God. It is the the word that brings the, the new birth, gives us new eyes and a new way of thinking and seeing things. It is the word that, that comes to us, whether through a worship service or listening to a, a sermon or, or reading a book. It is the word brought to bear in our lives that transforms us. This is the means that God has appointed. And that's why as we began looking at this, when Jesus gives, says he has all authority and he appoints his disciples to go out and be disciple makers and to teach others the truth that they have been taught so that many lives will be changed. And many people will see that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then for that to take place, we, we saw that our confession teaches that there is a distinct government of the church separate from the civil magistrate. And we saw that illustrated in, in one very pointed way in Scripture when Nathan the prophet comes to David the king and confronts him with his sin. And I said to you then, and I'll say to you again, that it is a loving confrontation that is required here. Jesus doesn't tell us not to say anything to anyone else, but he tells us how we're to say it. We're to say it with love. We're to say it with, when we've looked first at our own lives. I mentioned this before. I, th- I think it's such an important teaching of Scripture. The, the whole idea of the beam and the speck, we need, we, need to, we need to really lay hold of that in our own lives. Jesus doesn't say, well, you've got a beam in your eye, so you just sit over there and be quiet and never say anything to anybody else. No, he says, he says deal with it. Okay, that's a paraphrase. He, he, but that's really what he's saying. He's saying, deal with it. You know, don't, don't just say, well, I've got, you know, I've got this problem, but I'm not going to deal with my problem because it's much more fun to deal with yours. I want to address your problem. I want to I show you how far short you've fallen of the glory of God. No, first we're to deal with our own hearts, how far short we've fallen, how we've missed the mark. And then, not when we're perfect, but when we're actually dealing with things, then we're to go to others and to help them. We're to teach them, as Jesus tells his disciples, to go make disciples of the whole earth and to teach them his ways. And sometimes that teaching is positive, but sometimes it has to be negative, as it was in the case of David and Nathan. David had to hear some hard truths about himself. But notice how he responds because of God's grace. He owns his sin. I have sinned against the Lord. And he he goes on to pen Psalm 51, a beautiful hymn of repentance that we should all 
study and make use of. We all need to turn from our sin. And God causes us to do so by bringing his word to bear upon us. Jesus tells Peter that he is blessed because God has given him this revelation, this view of the, of the Christ. And when he says he's blessed, he's saying, he's saying Peter, again, if I can paraphrase, God, God saved you, Peter. You didn't save yourself. And he saved you from yourself. Isn't it interesting that this is Peter? Peter who will deny Jesus three times. Peter who will boast that nothing will keep him from following Jesus. And then a, a servant girl does keep him from following Jesus. This is, this is Peter who's always quick to act and speak. Not always as careful and prudent as he ought to be. And Peter is the one on whom Jesus says the church will be built. But not Peter alone, but Peter as he confesses the truth of Jesus Christ. I tell you, you are Peter, and I expect most of us know that Peter is the word for rock or stone. You notice that in, 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 in here in Canada, in, in French, you see the word Pierre. It means stone. You can drive through Quebec. I always wondered about why all these gravel pits were called Pierre. Well, I found out it's, it's because they're that's the French for, for stone, right? So, so Peter is, is a rock, and Jesus is, is having a word play here. But if we just see it as Peter the rock, and we fail to see that <laughs> the rock really is Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, and as we sang in Psalm 95, he's the rock of our salvation. Jesus is the, is the cornerstone. He's, he is the foundation. You know, so anybody who wants to, 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 to supplant Jesus as the foundation say, well, no, no, it's Peter. Peter's the, Peter's the one on whom the church is built. There's, there's no place for that. I think we're all aware that that's been a, a major flaw in Roman Catholic theology, seeing that the church is built on one man rather than seeing the church built only on Jesus Christ. I will build my church, Jesus says. How important is that? And we think we're the, we're, the, we're the church builders. No, no, Jesus is the one who is building the church. Jesus is the one who is drawing together people by his word. We need to remember, we need to remember that the church is the people and not the building. So many people get caught up with buildings. You know, we, need a, we need a better looking building. We need a, we need a bigger building. We need, we need the, the latest technology in our building. All these things. You know, the church has gathered sometimes in very unpleasant surroundings. But even when you're in a field and it's raining, or you're in a damp cave or a barn that smells, if the people of God are there, the church is there and are gathered together to worship, then those outward things become what they should be at all times, secondary to us. But when we make the, the physical, the primary, we fail to understand Jesus' words when he says, I will build the church. I will build the church and hell itself will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not stand against it. The, the wisdom, the machinations, the power of the evil one cannot stop the spread of the gospel. Now, at times, it seems like that is happening. 
At times it seems like the, the devil is winning. But we believe Jesus. We take him at his word. He says he will build the church, and hell itself will not stop the church from advancing. It doesn't advance equally at all times in all places. Sadly, in Western society, the church seems to be in rather a decline, but in other parts of the world, parts of Africa, parts of Asia, the church is vibrant and healthy and strong. I haven't actually checked this out as a 100% fact, but I, I heard somewhere that the, the, the South Koreans were thinking about sending missionaries to, to the USA to evangelize them. Uh, and that's, you know, it's... That's, that's where we've come to. We used to be, used to be that you know, England and, and America and Canada sent out missionaries into the, the dark parts of the, of the planet to bring the gospel light. And now it's turned. Those pieces that were evangelized a century ago are, are now turning their gaze back on, a, on the de- decadent West and saying, you guys need to get back. You need to, you need to know Jesus over here. You, you, need, you need to be transformed in your culture and your society so that you're not caught up with the foolishness of life, but you see the lasting, important things. Jesus himself and his kingdom. And the kingdom is what Jesus says, the keys thereof I will give to you, Peter. And not just you to Peter, but you as the church, as you're building up one another in faith, particularly through the preaching of God's word. Scots minister by the name of David Dixon was not a commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, but he was a contemporary. And he, and he wrote this, this great book. I love, I love the title. Truth, Victory Over Error. I think that's a great title. Truth, Victory Over Error. It is a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. And he does it in a, in a kind of a Socratic method. He asks questions, and then he answers them. And it's interesting that back in, you know, 1650, I think he published it in 1652, they were dealing with the same problems that we have today. You know, the same, the same sort of problems where, where people were just going out and, and proclaiming themselves preachers of the gospel. And he argues, he asks the question, is, is, this, is this legitimate? Uh, can anyone... Uh, Maintain the key of doctrine, he says, one of the keys of the kingdom, the key of doctrine, uh, by public preaching of the word. Is it proper for anyone with suitable gifts, though he is not called and sent to that employment? And he says, no, that's, that's not right. Well, how do we know it's not right? And then he gives ten reasons. I'm not going to give you all ten of them, uh, but just a couple of them I think are important. He says, why don't we accept anyone who goes out to preach? Well, he says, in the first place, because no man can believe in Christ, whom he has not heard, and how can he hear without a preacher, and how shall he preach unless he be sent? Romans 10, 14, and 15. You see the point of his argument. He says, if, if we're going to send out preachers, they have to be, they have to be sent. They're not, they're not self-appointed. And he brings that up as a, another one of his arguments, but I'll just bring it in under this one. He says, you're not allowed to be self-appointed. In fact, nobody can be self-appointed. They have to be appointed by someone else. No one takes this honor to himself, he says. Uh, that is, he ought not to take it, but he must be called of God as Aaron was, Hebrews 5, verse 4. So we can't just decide, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a preacher, 
and I'm going to go out and tell people what I think the Bible says, and they better listen. Or I'm just going to start up my own church. And he, he deals with this. This is not a new problem. I think it's rampant in our culture, in our society. Or anyone could put up a sign that says, you know, church, and can call himself a minister of the word, and it doesn't matter if they're qualified or they have the church's approval or not. And I guess this is a bit of a, I don't think it's a hobby horse I ride too often, but it is, it is a concern to me that the church doesn't take care to guard itself against the truth. You know, in no other professional society would this be allowed. How many of you would, you know, walk down the road and, and you see a, a sign up says, uh, you know, surgeon, and you're just going to walk into the surgeon shop and have somebody, you know, cut into you and, 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 and do some medical work for you, because they have a sign outside that says surgeon. And you go inside and they've got some medical instruments and, you know, no, you, you want to see that certificate hanging on the wall, don't you? That says they've got a, a medical education and a degree. You know, same thing with any other professional. You want, you want to see their accreditation. You want to make sure that they've been, they've been approved. Well, I said, this isn't a new thing. This was going on back in the, in the 1600s, during the time of the Westminster Assembly. People were hanging out their shingle, as it were, and, and calling themselves a church and teaching contrary to the Word of God. So David Dixon picks up against it. He says, he says, no one can do this without a call. For if he does, he usurps the authority of the church, seeing that preaching is an act of authority. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. And again, again, he goes on. Well, the preaching of God's word is the means by which the church is built, and it's also the means by which we are instructed how we are to live. Now, each of us has to take that word as it is read and preached and applied in our own lives. Let me give you an example. You have to decide what you're going to do for a job. You can't call the elders and say, well, tell me what I need to do for a job. You know, your elders might be happy to counsel you, but they're not going to say to you, you must do this. You, know, you call, the, call the elders and say, you know, I'm thinking I'd like to get married. Who should I marry? No, we don't. We don't have the answers. We don't have the authority to tell you those kinds of things. Now, nobody calls up the elder and says, is it okay if I rob a bank? Which bank should I rob? Well, that one we can answer. Because the Bible tells us very clearly, no, you can't rob a bank. That, that's, that's forbidden. You can't do that. And we, like, we like these, you know, really uh, easy, cut and dried kind of black and white answers. But, but you know, elders have to help people with, with issues of life not, and not just the big, obvious ones. When we, you know, we say, well, don't commit adultery, but what about, what about simpler things? What about lying and gossiping and backbiting what about, and tail-bearing? What, what about these sorts of things? Well, the elders have a responsibility to speak to the congregation. Guess what? It's not just the elders have a responsibility to speak to the congregation. It's something that, that we should be speaking to ourselves about and speaking to one another about. We don't believe that the church is all, you know, authoritarian. And, and here we've got these elders going around making all these rules and telling everybody what to do. That's not what Jesus is arguing for here. He says, no, I'm giving to the church the keys of the kingdom. That is, they are to preach the word. And they are also to maintain the membership of the church. See, the two keys are not one key to let them in and one key to let them out. It's the same key that opens the door, whether, whether people are coming and going. But the key of doctrine, the key of the word, 
must be exercised first. And then the key of the door of the kingdom of heaven so that you can come in. And Jesus says, in words that we may find difficult to bear, he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he's not giving absolute authority to the church. But he's telling the people that they need to be very careful about listening to the church. He puts it even more starkly in John's gospel. As Jesus takes leave of his disciples, he tells them that they are to receive the Holy Spirit. This is John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 22. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What is Jesus saying here? Does he say, we, we know that God alone can, can forgive sins. And yet Jesus is saying the judgments of the church are important. They're not to be taken lightly. We shouldn't dismiss what God has said in his word and through his servants. Now, you don't have to listen to me. I'm not, I'm not the authority. But this book from God is authoritative. And we need to look at it together to see what does God have to say. In fact, isn't that what we're doing right now? I mean, I hope that's what we're doing right now. We're looking into the Word together and saying, what does God say? And then we go from here and we, and we put it into practice. We have to be very, very careful. Man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus says, when Satan tempts him to turn the stones into bread and to feed himself, to satisfy his, his physical appetite. He says, man doesn't live by bread alone, Satan, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. Sometimes we read that, every word I like, every word that I agree with, every word that's comfortable. But that's not what the word says. It's not what God says. Take what you like. No, he says, you are to live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. And that then means that we must understand all of God's word. And we need to read and study all of God's word. I urged you, last Sunday, to read through the gospel, to see how Jesus makes disciples and how he disciplines those who follow after him. If you didn't do it last week, I encourage you to do it again. And and do it. Do the whole gospel in a week because then you get the whole scope. It would be better if you could sit down and do it all in in one sitting, but maybe, you know, that's more than you can bear. I said to you, you five five chapters a, a day for five days will or six days will get you through all the Gospels, or or any one of the Gospels, not all of them. Uh, But do that. See, how does Jesus teach us? Who is he and what is he like? Here he teaches his disciples. You are the church, I am building you, and I am giving you authority to teach and to admit into the fellowship of believers, and if necessary, to exclude from the fellowship of believers And then he gives them a very strange and time-sensitive commandment, not to tell anyone that he is the Christ. 
And again, here's where we have to, we have to rightly understand. Well, if we live by every word of the, that proceeds from the mouth of God, does that mean that today we, we're under this injunction? Jesus says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. No, we, know. we, we understand from the rest of Scripture that we are to tell people that Jesus is the Christ. This is no longer to be kept a secret. This is no longer just for the disciples. This is the message of the gospel. And we know that from the end of Matthew's message. For Jesus says, I'm sending you out to make disciples of all the nations. I'm sending you to, to baptize and to teach. I'm, I'm telling you to exercise the keys of the kingdom. To make disciples. To share the good news. To let everyone know so that they too will confess what Peter has confessed. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that by believing they might have life in his name. May God grant us grace to hear his voice speaking to us from every page of Scripture. And may he give us all the commitment to study the whole Scripture and not just the parts that we find comforting and easy to take, but those difficult and thorny passages as well. Because it is by the spiritual discipline of exercising our hearts and minds in the Word that we grow. But we can't grow in spiritual disciplines. We can't know Jesus Christ if we don't read his word. So again, I, I, I urge you, read the, read the Gospels. Read large portions of the Gospels and think about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and what he means to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have indeed given us your son, the word, we pray, Father, that we would make use of your gift. We pray that we would study to know the Lord Jesus Christ more closely, more intimately, more truthfully as we read your word. We pray that we would not be weary in studying. We pray that we would be strengthened, encouraged, and built up, and that we would build one another up in the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. Help us, Father, not to neglect our duties, but to fulfill them with the grace and the strength that you provide through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.